Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. She's going to do a bit more work before we publish it, and she says she's almost, almost 100% sure that we have got this pathogen DNA in those bones. And it's a very specific pathogen. It is the plague. It's the same pathogen as the Black Death. Wow. So it's extraordinary. I've been in that field. Mm. I've, I've touched those bones. Yeah. I've seen those finds. Yeah. Now to find that it's the plague is kind of wonderful. Hello and welcome to Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson. Today we're going to be talking about bones. Now, if you go into virtually any museum in the whole country, you'll find a little door on the back wall. It's the museum store and it's where archaeologists for a hundred years or more have deposited the stuff they've found during their digs. Hundreds, thousands of boxes full of little bits of pot and bones. It began to be a real problem because where do you store all this stuff? And they started talking about the idea of getting rid of an awful lot of it, possibly mainly the bones, because, you know, once you've got a bit of information from one bone, what are you going to get from the other 29 in your box? But then archaeologists began to say there are going to be changes in science, there's going to be changes in archaeology, which will mean that those bones could be of real value. And those people were absolutely right. What we know about bones, which we didn't know 20 years ago, is phenomenal. So today I've invited a very old friend of mine to talk to me about what studying bones is all about. She is the wonderful biological anthropologist, author, broadcaster, presenter of Digging for Britain. Are you there yet? Yes, it's Professor Alice Roberts. You know, now we're in the era of archaeogenomics, so sequencing entire genomes so all of the dna that's in a person that's still preserved in their bones it is just extraordinary and it is actually transforming archaeology alice has got a new book out called crypt 
Life, Death and Disease in the Middle Ages and Beyond, which I urge you to read. I don't really like plugging books all that much on this podcast, but this one is an absolute cracker. It covers a whole multitude of subjects and it's a really, really good read with lots of stories in it. Anyway, before we get to Alice and her new work, Melissa, my producer, is here for a chat. Hello, lovely. Hi, Tony. So this is really fortuitous because you told me that you wanted to talk to Alice. We yep. booked Alice to come on the podcast and it just so happened she had a new book out. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Perfect timing. This book is really good. Yeah. You know when you see something good on Netflix and you just binge watch it? I really binge read Alice's new book. Me too. I, what I love is she has all this cool stuff about DNA and science techniques, looking at bones, and then she ties it together with the history. Yeah. It's so good. So these are stories as well. They're stories that the bones are telling us. I love that she joins it all up. I agree with you. She's also someone who wears their knowledge very, very lightly. If you just started chatting to her, you wouldn't know that she was a prof, would you? Absolutely. I mean, I think that our listeners are going to absolutely love this chat that's coming up. Before we get there, I want to read a quote right from the end of the book, which I thought was fantastic. And I think it's going to set it up really well. She says, we experience the world through our bodies and our lives are written onto those bodies and onto our bones. And this is what the skeletons of the dead tell us when we find them. Listen to us. We have stories to tell. Listen to us, we have stories to tell. That's brilliant. Isn't that brilliant? I have with me the wonderful biological anthropologist, author and broadcaster, Professor Alice Roberts. Let's do an archaeological bones primer. What, when you pull a bone out of an archaeological site, are you likely to be able to tell about the, the person who once owned that bone, was yeah. part of that bone? Well, if it's well-preserved, so let's start off with that assumption. So if you've got a burial with a well-preserved skeleton in it, then you've got a very good chance of being able to say how old that person was when they died. And actually, it's a lot easier with juvenile skeletons because there are a lot more changes happening in a programmed way. So the bones have various areas that are separated. They're not really separated. They're, they're joined by bits of cartilage, but the cartilage is gone in an archaeological dig. So you're able to map out all those changes and, and establish how old that person was. With adults, it's more difficult because you're sort of looking at wear and tear and people fall apart at different rates. So you put people in very broad age categories. But age at death is is one thing. With an adult skeleton, not so much with a juvenile because the changes haven't happened yet, with an adult skeleton, you can usually tell the biological sex, so whether somebody was male or female. Although there'll always be some skeletons which are difficult to categorise because you, you haven't got genitalia. You're just looking at bones. And basically everything that we look at in the bones varies on the spectrum from a feature which might be very chunky and very obviously male all the way through to a much more kind of gracile uh, version of it which is obviously female but in the middle you're going to have variations which are difficult to to pin down isn't there some sort of notch though yes there is this is very well remembered tony there's a brilliant notch in the pelvis called the greater sciatic notch and it's where the sciatic nerve emerges from because the sciatic nerve forms inside your pelvis 
and then emerges underneath piriformis muscle and through the greater sciatic notch, which is converted to a foramen by the ligament, and then runs down the back of your leg and supplies all the muscles in your leg and sensation in your leg. That greater sciatic notch tends to be wider in a female skeleton compared to a male skeleton. And that's just part of the fact that actually when we look at any part of the pelvis, it tends to be wider because the whole pelvis tends to be wider in a female compared with a male for obvious reasons, because it has to, in principle, be able to accommodate the birth canal. Mm. So it has to be accommodate um, a fetus coming through coming through that um, that oval shape of the, of the bony pelvis. So yeah, so age, sex, and then my particular interest is pathology. So absolutely painstakingly going through every bone and looking for any signs of pathology, which might be injury, so it might be violence, or it might be metabolic diseases, so things like scurvy, uh, various diseases that can be associated with with with, um, with diet, and then infections. So with most infections, you just get non-specific changes, either a little bit of bone eaten away or some more bone laid down, and that's kind of as far as I could go as an osteologist myself, and then as my colleagues on the genetics side now. We can actually sample that bone and see what that infection is. So it is transformative having the DNA when it comes to these diseases. What about uh, injuries? We've excavated a lot of battle sites. You, I know, are very familiar with a a number of pits where bodies have been chucked in, Mm. for instance, in Saxon times. How do you know whether the attack on that bone has happened before the person died or after they died? Now, that's a really good question. And the answer is we don't most of the time. So the context of those of those skeletons is really important. So, you know, the work I can do in the lab, looking at those skeletons laid out, then has to be put together with what the archaeologists are finding out more broadly about that particular site um, and the way that those, those skeletons ended up in the ground. So you're going to have different ideas about how an individual with what looks like a violent injury on it ended up in the ground, ended up in that grave, if, for instance, they're in a mass grave, as opposed to a grave which is well furnished, they've been nicely laid out, they've got grave goods, all of that kind of thing. So it is then back to the archaeologists to to contextualise that. But what you can say is whether an injury was caused a long time before death in which case you'll start to see some signs of healing on it quite mm-hmm. quickly, even if that's just, you know, the edge of a of a blade wound, for instance, starting to kind of heal over and starting to, to be slightly rounded rather than an abrupt edge into the bone. You can use radiological techniques to help with that. So you can do things like using... I've, I've worked on one particular um, case where we were looking at the remains of infants, really sadly, with cut wounds, cut marks on them. And we we wanted to absolutely make sure that those cut marks had happened in antiquity. And we wanted to know what kind of blade had been used. And they were very tiny, so it was difficult to say too much just looking at them with the naked eye. But we did micro CT. So in other words, the kind of CT that you would have you know, if you're going to hospital and you're having a having CT a scan, scan yeah. but you can do it at a microscopic level. So you're virtually slicing through the bone using x-rays and then you can look at the profile of the, the blade wound and we could say this is definitely caused by a metal knife <laughs> um, because it's so narrow and V-shaped. Mm. And also it has sediment in the bottom. So it's definitely not happened after excavation. This has been there before the bones went into the ground. So there's all sorts of extra techniques that we can use to to characterise um, lesions like that. If a weapon injury happened around the time of death, we really have no way of saying whether it happened just before or just after. So we actually have a term for that. We talk about perimortem injuries. So in other words, injuries that happened 
so close to the time of death, we can't tell if it was just before or just afterwards. And then you have some injuries which probably are the cause of death. So it's very, very difficult to say if an injury is the cause of death. But there are some that most definitely are. So things like if you see a fracture of the the top part of the second cervical vertebra, that can be snapped off if somebody's been hanged, for instance. So that is called a hangman's fracture. And at that point, you would say, this is most likely to be the Mm. cause of death. I mean, of course, the person could have been... It could have had their throat slit before they were hanged, but it's most likely that that was the cause of death. But it is tricky. It's trickier than it seems. So the archaeologists always press me on this and go, what was the cause of death? Yeah. And you, most of the time you just have to say, I, I really don't know. But we can look at patterns of injuries and that's really interesting. So it might sound as though I'm kind of saying to you, well, you know, we can we can document this stuff, but we can't say anything. But actually you can say a lot and especially at a population level. So if you were to look at a whole population and you were to... Look at all the reports, for instance, on um, violent injuries in the Roman period. You'd be able to say whether there seemed to be an uptick in violence in a particular century or an uptick in violence in a, in a particular era. So that's really useful as well. And the same with disease. So we can say, do we seem to have periods where actually there's less of a burden of disease and then suddenly more? So really the data comes in, you are, you're able to answer better questions when you when you zoom out and you look at whole populations tell me about the anchoress oh this is a wonderful story the anchoress of all saints fishergate this is from an archaeological site that was excavated in 2007 and it was a parish church that had kind of disappeared and they found the foundations of it And they excavated the cemetery. But in fact, the most interesting skeleton wasn't in the cemetery outside the church. It was in the church itself. It was in the apse of the church. And it was a really, really odd little grave. It wasn't rectangular with the the skeleton laid out straight. The skeleton was really compacted, crouched in a pit. Yeah. Yeah. In a pit in the apse of a church. Really, really odd. And it was analysed by the wonderful osteoarchaeologist Lauren McIntyre. And she was fascinated by this skeleton. She thought that she had an idea who it was from a very early point, actually, because there were records of there being an anchoress. An anchoress is like a hermit? Yeah, they're very strange. Anchoresses are the female version. Anchorites are the male version. And they are kind of recluses, but in plain sight, as it were, because they're not removed from society. They're... They're very public in a way because they're walled up inside churches. Walled up walled inside up. churches. It's so strange, isn't it? Is um, there a window so you can see them? or Sometimes there was a little window, but they were encouraged to have a curtain over it so that they didn't look out and people didn't look in. And sometimes there was a little squint so that they could look out and see the altar in the church. And if this was an anchoress walled up in the apse of this church, then she would have been perfectly positioned to kind of look out and see the altar. And who did they think she was? Well, this is the thing, is that Lauren actually managed to track down the historical documents and this record of this particular anchoress. So there's there's a name, and she's called Lady Isabella German. And Lady Isabella German is mentioned in a record of probate. So it looks as though she was arranging for her you know possessions to be dispersed after her death and then there's seven other mentions of her in various people's wills and they leave money to her so that she can pray for them so all that we really know is that you know she was a she's described as an anchorite or an anchoress that's the backstory what about the bones 
well, the bones are incredible. So what we've got from that skeleton, we can see very clearly, what Lauren could see very clearly is that this is a female skeleton. So this is matching up. Somebody who was aged 30 to 50 when they died. And then there were things around the skeleton that you kind of expect in somebody who's middle-aged. So a bit of arthritis, a bit of hard calculus on the teeth, that kind of thing. And then there were these lesions, which are completely different and very specific for a particular infection. There are lesions that are causing or, or caused by accumulation of bone on the surface of the shin bones and, and, and round the arms as well. And then there are these really characteristic, almost moth-eaten lesions where you've got these punched out holes in bone all around the sternum and again on the, on the hands and the legs. Now, we haven't got much of the skull where you'd expect there to be more of it, unfortunately, but there's enough throughout the skeleton to know exactly what this infection is. And it's syphilis. Wow. So it's a really interesting story. So we're talking about a syphilitic heiress walled up in a church yeah yeah that's a horror story isn't it it's just bizarre and of course then you start to wonder about the rest of her biography i mean it's amazing how much biography we can get from the bones you know it's amazing to have that skeleton and to know that this is an individual who's female who's an adult who's who, who had tertiary syphilis so she's had syphilis for a long time this is kind of the final phase of syphilis when it gets into your bones in that way and it doesn't just get into your bones it gets into your heart it gets into your brain so you end up with horrendous psychiatric problems in tertiary syphilis where you have stroke-like syndromes you have changes in mood changes in personality so then of course you start to think hang on a minute is this what led her to become an anchoress did she start to recognize those changes in herself and seek to remove herself from society you also make the observation that she may have become very hunched really quite distorted she may as far as society is concerned have been quite problematic mm. and society might have been problematic to her so yeah, actually yeah it might have suited everybody if she was walled away rather than simply being walled away for the glory of god well i find this really interesting when it comes to anchoresses because very often when you read about descriptions of anchoresses you're reading about this phenomenon in the middle ages it's described as though it's always the anchoress that's making the choice and that you know it's a pious choice it's her choice to dedicate herself to to christ to be walled up in the church and you think hang on a minute was that always the case? Is it, as you say, actually motivated by other people? Is this other people saying, hang on a minute, she's behaving strangely, she looks strange. I think it would be best for us and for her, they would persuade themselves if she were to be walled up in the church and kept there. So I think it's really, it is really interesting. And I don't think we know. And I, and I don't think we should therefore leap to conclusions. We shouldn't leap to concluding that it's always the anchoress and it's always a choice which is about dedicating yourself to a religious life. We might not uh, leap to conclusions, but we can leap to stories, can't we? We can, uh, we can let our imaginations wander. And one of the points that you make, which I, I think is very good and it certainly excites me historically at the moment, by and large, we don't know nearly as much about women in the medieval ages as, as we do about blokes. Mm. And it's easy to fall into that track like Hollywood does, whereby all the middle-aged women are kind of rosy-cheeked and pretty and daft and don't do anything. <laughs> Whereas what you're arguing is that there are areas where they could have had a huge amount of agency. Yeah. And that one of the things that 
If you were a wealthy woman, you'd got married, your husband died, it might have been a shrewd thing to do to go into a nunnery where you wouldn't have to marry anybody else and you could probably keep carry on with your business life anyway. I think you're completely right, Tony, and I think as well, if we just focus on one aspect, so if we just focus on the religious aspects of these choices, you're missing everything else. In the case of Isabella German, you're potentially missing this story, which is also about suffering with a particular disease and perhaps the psychiatric impact of that. You're also missing out on wider social, political, economic mm. aspects as well, which are not set against those those kind of religious aspects, but they're they're definitely there. They're definitely part of it. And we know, we, you know, we have great biographies of other anchoresses. There's there's one called Catherine de Audley, who's also known as Catherine of Ledbury. William Wordsworth wrote a poem about her. And she was a, a medieval anchoress in Ledbury who was an extremely wealthy woman. And she was an extremely wealthy widow. So her husband died and she was left with this enormous estate in the Welsh marches. There would obviously have been men sniffing around. You know, she's a wealthy widow. I want a bit of that. And she decided to become an anchoress. And I think in her case, it probably is about the economics. She makes sure that her her children are looking after her estate. And she goes and talks to the bishop and says, you know, I have a stipend. I've got enough money to be an anchoress. You had to have enough money. The bishop had to agree. Um, And so she she goes and becomes the anchoress at, at Ledbury. So I think for her, yeah, I mean, there could have been a deeply kind of religious spiritual reason for doing it but there was a clear economic Economic reason for doing it as well and avoiding you know an unwanted marriage into the bargain you are intrigued by so many different things and you'll often not just concentrate on the bones but as we say go off on one yeah (laughs) and one of the things I loved about the story of the anchoresses is that you mentioned that there was like a a book of rules for anchoresses or at least advice for anchoresses one of which was an anchoress can have her own cat. Oh, yeah, she, yeah. Suddenly it transformed for me what the life of an anchoress must be like. You could still have someone you loved in there with you. I know, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And also keeping the rats down, I think, would have been important. I mean, the Ancreen Wisps, this handbook, says it was a you know a frugal life. You were only allowed meat on particular holy days and, and you were meant to live a fairly kind of pious, frugal life. You were also meant to do things to stop yourself from idleness and you know that could lead to sin and temptation so uh, you were encouraged to do things like mend people's clothes for them that was one thing there'd be a lot of sewing involved as well as a lot of praying and also dig your own grave with your hands keep those hands busy go and dig your grave in the corner so maybe that's what we're looking at with that strange pit-like grave in the apse of uh, of fishergate is a grave that's actually been dug out by her own hands it's quite horrendous isn't it Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. 
I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Tony Robinson bringing you my cunning cast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a rating or a review. And do take a look at our back catalogue. There's a growing selection of shows there to keep you company. Everything from Census, Coronation, Nights, What the Past Smelt Like, loads and loads. You're going to find something you like, aren't you? So you've got all these lovely stories in Crypt, but Crypt's actually the, the third of three books that you've written about your obsession with bones, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So I started off with Ancestors, which is prehistory. So wonderful stories there, including the Amesbury Archer and the Red Lady of Paviland, who's not a lady at all, but Britain's first burial more than 30,000 years ago. And then the second book, Buried, is all about the first millennium of the Common Era. So there's lots of Romans, Vikings, Anglo-Saxons in it. And this one is focusing on the Middle Ages. I do briefly make a foray into the 16th century to look at the Mary Rose. But it's mostly Middle Ages and also its pathology, which again kind of goes back to my roots because I'm an osteoarchaeologist and my particular specialty is paleopathology, diagnosis of disease. And uh, yes, you're, 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 you're throwing long words. Ah, it's all me. bones. It's so, just, yeah, bones and disease. So you're a bones archaeologist. Yeah, you know this, Tony, because we first met in 2001 when I worked on Time Team and that was my very, very first Time Team dig at a huge huge cemetery in Hampshire. A wonderful cemetery, a wonderful archaeology site. Bremer. Bremer. Yeah, in Hampshire. And we found some good stuff there, didn't we? Yeah, Which, And you've developed that since then. Well, this has been really interesting, actually, in the course of writing these books, because when I was writing Buried, I was writing about Anglo-Saxon burials, and early Anglo-Saxon burials are fantastic because they often include grave goods. And I am interested in the bones, but I have progressively become more and more interested in the culture that goes with them. And when you've got that together, you know, when we find artefacts elsewhere on archaeological sites, they're kind of out of context Mm. um, in a strange way. They might be in a rubbish pit, whereas when you find them in a grave, they have a very definite context, a very a, a very kind of circumscribed context, which is about that person. Absolutely. Yeah. So either they're personal possessions or things that that person was wearing, or they're objects that are being put in the grave by the mourners that have meaning, that are related to that person. So you get this kind of whole collection of objects, including the bones themselves, that you can use to, to tell a biography. So I was writing about those early Anglo-Saxon graves, and I thought, well, I'll write about some ones that I've actually looked at because of course after after we film time team I would take the bones back to Bristol University and pore over them and write the reports on them so I wrote a little bit about that and we we were left with a real mystery at the end of that dig in that a lot of the burials we were looking at do you remember all the buckets yeah oh there's amazing crazy imagine if you, dear listener, uh, were just like digging in a field and you found a silver bucket, uh, a really old silver bucket, and you think, blimey, O'Reilly, where did that come from? Yeah. You put your spade in about five yards away. 
cool, there's another silver bucket. Was that eight we found? There were a lot, weren't there? So there's obviously something. I mean, we never really got to the bottom of what these buckets were about, but they were obviously to do with identity. Yeah, and we think it was tied in somehow with Constantinople and the the Eastern Roman Empire, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Trade was going on. There was that bucket that was found by the metal detectorist that set the whole site in action, as it were. There are several of them that have been found right across Europe and over into Turkey and Syria. And we think they come from Antioch. We think they're from a single workshop in Antioch, which is just amazing. Oh, my buckets go everywhere. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what they're for, other than obviously putting something in. So we found this Saxon graveyard. Yeah, yeah. With these strange buckets Mm. and with lots of bones. But since then, you've tried to examine those bones much more closely than we had the technology to do 20 odd years ago. Yeah, this is the amazing thing now. So we were left with a bit of a mystery, the mystery about the buckets, but the really big mystery at Bremer was the fact that a lot of the burials were double and even triple. There was a really curious one with two young men, two young male skeletons, and I think a three or a four-year-old buried between them. You think, what on earth is going on in this cemetery? There's obviously something traumatic, something awful that's befallen that community, and it's probably either conflict or disease. And at the end of filming in 2001, I think you summed up and said... We don't know. It's got to be one of those things. It's conflict or disease. And we kind of left it there because that's as far as we could go with the investigation at the time. And now, of course, we can go a bit further and we can particularly go further when it comes to disease. So when I was writing the book, I was reading about another Anglo-Saxon site in, in England, which had been sampled for ancient DNA and not in particular looking at the human DNA, but looking for pathogen DNA. What does that mean? Looking for the DNA of things like bacteria and viruses that would have been in that person when they died. And they found a very particular infection in this Anglo-Saxon cemetery in Cambridgeshire. And I looked at the pictures of it. It was excavated in the 1980s. And I looked at the black and white photos of it. They look really similar to Bremer. There were lots and lots of double burials. And I thought, oh my goodness, maybe we had a disease like that happening in Bremer. So I've been working with colleagues at the Crick Institute in London and particularly Pooja Swali, who's been focusing in her research on metagenomes, in other words, the genomes that aren't human, the genomes that are the genomes of bacteria and viruses. And I said to her, do you think it's worth going back and looking at these bones? And she said, yes. So the researchers went and sampled them. And I don't know if you remember, Tony, but those skeletons were in I mean, they're in terrible shape. It was very disappointing for me as an osteologist, that dig, because most of them were so crumbly, there was barely anything left. A few teeth, really. But there were some that were better preserved, including those ones that Phil was excavating. Yes, Phil Harding, who used to work with us on Time Team, who was such a tartar about making sure that all the edges of the pits which we we were digging, the trenches we were digging, were absolutely pristine. Yes. And it pays off, doesn't it? Yeah. Because you don't trample on the bones. No. And I think the Time Team digs were also... bit of training weren't they yeah, for all yeah. the younger archaeologists getting to work with people like Phil so and you've got these pristine bones we managed to when I say we Pooja managed to extract the DNA from them and then I just had months where I was going Pooja have you got any pathogen DNA and she said no and I don't think we're going to get any Alice come on we we need to prepare ourselves we need to be realistic about this because there's barely any DNA there and it's all in tiny little fragments and she said then I've got one last thing I can do which is send in a DNA probe so send in a little matching piece of DNA for the DNA that we're hoping to find and see if I can fish some out 
Pudi, have you done it? I'd be emailing her. And, uh, and she'd go, no, Alice, be patient. I will keep on trying. Did you ever manage to get the information from her? Yes, she is 95% sure, she says. She's going to do a bit more work before we publish it. And she says she's almost, almost 100% sure that we have got this pathogen DNA in those bones. And it's a very specific pathogen. It is the plague. It's the same pathogen as the Black Death. Wow. That's extraordinary. I've been in that field. Mm. I've I've touched those bones. I've seen those finds. And I've puzzled over the fact, why were these people buried in this way? Now to find that it's the plague is kind of wonderful. When we started talking, I'd imagined all the time we would have been talking about these solid things called bones. But more and more, actually, what we're talking about is them as vessels for DNA, isn't it? Yeah, it is. The way that ancient DNA and particularly, you know, now we're in the era of archaeogenomics, so sequencing entire genomes. So all of the DNA that's that's in a person that's still preserved in their bones. I mean, that is it is just extraordinary and it's and it's kind of technology that I didn't expect. I didn't expect us to be able to sequence this much and I didn't expect to be able to answer so many questions with it and it's just getting faster and faster and we're getting more and more data and being able to answer more and more questions and it is actually transforming archaeology. I find it so exciting because we're in at the birth of it, aren't we? It's yeah. like this thing didn't exist when we first started. Mm. Then this amazing tool has arrived that's transformed our thinking about archaeology but we don't know yet where it's going to go but you in your book you offer some tantalizing glimpses of the future like the fact that the plague the black death the justinian plague which happened in roman times we know a bit about them and they seem pretty much the same you have found evidence of the same sort of thing in the flipping bronze age and indeed i think i'm right in saying you think you found it as far back as the new stone age yeah no it's it is astonishing so we've had these three big pandemics of history as you say so we had the plague which broke out in east asia hong kong at the end of the 19th century into the 20th century that was identified by Alexander Yersang, who was working for the Pasteur Institute, as being a specific bug, a specific bacterium that he could see under the microscope, which he originally called Pasteurella, and then it ended up being called Yersinia after him. So Yersinia pestis is the agent of the more recent plague. And then around about 20 years ago, people were looking at 14th century plague pits, mass graves full of full of skeletons from the Black Death and extracting DNA from those. So the punchline is the Black Death is the plague. It is Yersinia pestis. So, if we, you know, we can be very precise about that diagnosis. We're not just talking about a plague with a small p. We're talking about the plague with a capital P. And then the Justinianic plague of the 6th century, which would have been the one that eventually washes up on the shores of Britain and kills the people at Bremer, is the same thing. It's the same bug and you know what we're using to make that diagnosis is the same technology that we used in covid so it is it is pcr and sequencing but we're able to use that and apply that to rather than swabs that are stuck up your nostrils and and on the back of your throat samples which are drilled out of ancient bones so colleagues at the crick have, have now pushed it right back into the bronze age in britain and then we know that we've got plague in the in the Neolithic and the, at the tail end of the Stone Age in Europe as well. And they're all pretty much the same? They haven't changed hugely over time? 
Yeah, there are some changes. So, I mean, that's really interesting because we can we can then look at the similarities and differences. We can it's they're similar enough to say yes, it's all Yersinia pestis, but obviously things mutate over time, as we know with COVID. You know, new strains are, are constantly appearing. New strains don't appear quite as quickly with with bacteria usually. But we do see some genetic changes and some of them that happened in prehistory seem to be linked with a leap in virulence. So there's one change in particular, there's one genetic change, which seems to make the bacteria clump together a bit more. And we think that that, what that does is create a more virulent strain because, of course, what you've got in in the plague is an infection which is spread by other animals Mm. so it jumps from animal to animal and it can exist in reservoirs like like rats and then it's transmitted from those rats to humans by fleas so the fleas are biting the rats they're ingesting the blood with the yersinia pestis bacteria in it and if those yersinia pestis bacteria have this tendency to clump together they block the flea's gut so the flea is drinking the blood of the host but it's still hungry. So it carries on biting. It will bite and bite and bite because it's really hungry. And of course, every bite is another opportunity to spread the disease to a new host, to a new victim. So this clumping has inadvertently caused a brand new virulent strain of the plague that will spread much more quickly because of these terribly hungry, bitey fleas. So yeah, I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? To be able to identify a particular genetic change a switch that suddenly sends a disease off in a different direction and what's really interesting about all of this work is that it's really useful to us in the here and now to be able to you know it's, it's fascinating to archaeologists it's fascinating to us who were at Bremer to know finally why those people actually died but does it have an implication as far as for instance covid is concerned yeah it has an implication for understanding how diseases work in the here and now because we're able to see how they work over time we're able to see how mutations can cause different effects, sometimes with pathogens evolving to become milder, sometimes with pathogens evolving to become more virulent. This is That's a terribly good point, because me in my ignorance, and I bet you 99% of the people who are listening to this, will think that when there is a disease amongst the public, eventually it will sort of burn itself out and get weaker and weaker and weaker mm, and you're pulling no. a face to say no, that isn't <laughs> no. the case. No, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of discussion about that with COVID and I found that quite extraordinary because you just can't predict. I mean, we're trying to predict evolution. You can't predict evolution like that. You don't know what's going to happen. We're talking about random mutations and some of those random mutations will have no effect at all. Some of those random mutations might mean that a pathogen becomes less infective or less virulent. But some of them mean that it becomes worse, as in this flea-blocking genetic mutation yeah. in, in Yersinia pestis. So I'm really nervous about COVID. I'm really nervous about having this still quite novel pathogen circulating at a level where it's kind of endemic. It's just, it, 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 you know, we're just getting waves. It's not even seasonal. We're just getting wet, multiple waves of it every year. And it's just being allowed to circulate. And it is throwing off new mutations and developing new strains all the time. You're listening to Tony Robinson's Cunning Cast with me, Tony Robinson, and today I'm looking at bones and the stories they tell us about past lives with the wonderful Crypt Creeper herself, Professor Alice Roberts. Hooray, hooray, hooray. I had always thought that 
there was the living human being, which was like the flesh and the brain and the skin and the fingernails and all the growy stuff. And then there was, as it were, the scaff, the scaffolding, <laughs> which was the bones, which was inert, but which got us from A to B yeah. and stopped us collapsing in on ourselves. And I know I'm being ludicrously ridiculous about that, but what you argue so strongly in your books is that that image of bones is far from the truth. Yeah, I and I think it's probably the fault of archaeology that we think about bones in that way because they are the things which are the hardest bits of our body and they tend to stick around when everything else has rotted away. Bones and teeth, which are even harder, of course. So I think we, it, we end up with this kind of slightly strange idea of the skeleton being a separate thing from, from the rest of the body. And mm. of course, it's not. It is, it's there inside the body. It only makes sense in the context of the body. I mean, it's there to provide protection for your, your lungs and your heart, to provide the scaffolding for the mechanism of respiration as we're sitting here and our diaphragms are contracting away and pulling air in and out of our lungs. And it's there to form a system of levers that muscles attach to, that you know, ligaments and tendons attach to. So it is, it is very much part of the body. And when I teach it in medical school, that's what we talk about, the musculoskeletal system. So the skeleton isn't taught as a separate thing. It's taught together with the muscles and the tendons and the ligaments because that's the context that it makes sense in. And then the other thing, as you said, is that we tend to think of it as being this inert thing and it's not at all. So we're aware that children grow and obviously their skeletons must be changing because they're getting bigger every day. I think I thought they just sort of stretched. <laughs> just stretched in various directions. <laughs> yeah. no, they're constantly remodelling their skeleton, you know, adding a bit more on and taking a bit off here and, and t totally changing their skeletons, which is amazing if you think about it. If you think about the shape of a bone, if you think, you think about the shape of a five-year-old's femur and then you look at a 10-year-old's femur, it's kind of the same shape, but it's a completely remodelled bone. It hasn't just been stretched. It's been broken down and rebuilt, but it's always maintained that shape as it's gone. It's very, very clever indeed. And you say that the bone sort of communicates with itself. Yeah, it does. So that kind of process that we can, you know, we're obviously much more aware of in children, it carries on through our lives. So our bones are constantly remaking themselves. You know, we're sitting here now and throughout our skeletons, there will be cells that are taking bits of bone away and other cells which are laying bits of bone down. And that's going on throughout your skeleton. So you, Tony, have not got the same skeleton that you had 10 years ago. Basically, pretty much all of that skeleton has been replaced in the last 10 years. So it's like the victory in that it looks like the same ship, but it's been repaired and replaced over time. So no single plank is the original plank in the victory. And it's the same in your skeleton, apart from your peach's temporal bones, which do stay much more stable. Now, you gabbled that word and you've... <laughs> so many times you've gabbled that word to me over the years and I've just kind of nodded. So this is the perfect opportunity. Mm. Can you say that word again slower and explain to me what that bone is? Yeah, this is a really interesting bit of the body. So the petrous temporal bone. So petrous means like a stone because it's very dense. Like Petrus, Peter the Rock. Kind yes, of thing, exactly. Yeah. Temporal because it's the bone on the side of your skull here. And the reason we think that bone is called the temporal bone is because the temporal area here is usually where people's hair starts to go white. You're not on television, Alice. I know, I'm <laughs> touching the sides of my head on a podcast. I'm touching the sides of my head just in front and above, of my, ear, above my ears. So that's the temporal region. And it's where we see tempus. It's where we see the passage of time <sighs> with, with whitening hair. 
And then underlying that is the temporal bone. But the actual petrous bit of the temporal bone is right inside the skull and it houses the ear mechanics. Mm -hmm. Um, And we think it's that dense for acoustic reasons. And it's brilliant as far as the ancient DNA crew are concerned because that's where they find the best preserved DNA in archaeological skeletons. Oh, I can remember you saying once something like they've just said in the newspaper, big shock horror, this is where we found the DNA. And I could have told you that's where you'd find it. Yeah. Because every archaeologist <laughs> knows it's the thickest bone in the body. Yeah, it's the densest bone. And and if you you know, if you've got a skeleton that's not very well preserved and there's a bit of it preserved, it will inevitably be the peach's temporal because that is this incredibly dense bone. And if you have a skull X-ray, if you have a lateral skull X-ray from the side, it shines white. I mean it's so dense, it shines white in the middle of the head. But throughout the body, you mentioned this communication that goes on and that is fascinating so your bone is constantly remodeling itself how does it know what to do it knows what to do because there are cells inside it that are just constantly monitoring so if we go to the gym and start playing tennis which i've just started doing again actually after lots many years and i'm rubbish at it but if i carry on doing it my right arm will get more muscly than my left arm we know this you know you go to the gym you can build muscles up what we're less aware of is the fact that under those muscles, the bones are responding as well. So the bones will be changing and becoming more robust, more chunky, if I go and play a bit more tennis. And what's happening is that the, the cells in the bone are constantly responding to stresses and strains, and they talk to each other. So the cells that are trapped inside hard bone mineral, I mean, they, they made that mineral, they pumped it out, and they end up creating little caves of themselves. They push out the bone mineral, and then suddenly they're just stuck inside these little tiny caves inside the bone, uh, but they're not isolated because there are tiny channels linking up one cave and the next, and they send out these little fingery projections. It's rather like E.T. phone home. Remember what they call again, osteo? The osteocytes, yeah. Osteocytes. So, uh, honestly, it's all Latin and Greek anatomy, and we just we just don't say bone cell because that sounds far too understandable so we translate everything into latin or it's greek a hard language yeah. yeah so osteo bone sight cell it just me it doesn't mean any more than bone cell it just means bone cell and they reach out these little tiny filaments through canaliculi little canals in the bone and they talk to each other rather like nerve cells so they're constantly communicating and they're able to communicate with other cells on the outside of the bone and they'll say we're feeling a bit under pressure in here we need some more bone they're saying that through chemical signals that they're sending to each other and then more bone will be added on the outside of the bone or they might be saying actually i'm not getting so stressed today and so the big osteoclasts the bone eating cells will start to eat away the bone so it's it's constant it's happening all the time bone is a living tissue it's evolution extraordinary it's mad yeah it is mad yeah yeah Yeah. i think the only flaw in darwin for me is he didn't explain quite how bonkers the whole process was yeah i mean it is extraordinary um and it is incredibly you know it's incredibly complex you know that especially when you get down to a kind of biochemical level of what's actually happening inside cells and between cells and i think that For some people, there's this, you know, kind of almost insuperable idea of it being so complex that it can't possibly have evolved. And yet, actually, we can we can see how it can have evolved. We can see how the building blocks gradually build up. And I think that for me, if you look at embryology and you look at how a how a body develops from a single cell. So how, you know, our bodies, which are trillions of cells and all sorts of different cells, bone cells, but also nerve cells, liver cells, muscle cells, whatever. They all started off from one single cell. 
So if you've done that, then perhaps it's easier to understand the fact that if we go back through through vast stretches of time, we get to the point in our family albums where we flick through enough photographs, we go back and back and back and back and back, and eventually we get back to the great to the power ex-grandparent who's a single cell. You had quite a lot of fascinating fun looking at the bones on the Mary Rose, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And that actually is a story which started a while ago as well. So that's a story that started in 2010 when I was making the very first series of Dinging for Britain for BBC Two. We're now on our, we've just done our 11th series. In 2010, I was just setting out to film the very first series and I visited what was going to be the Mary Rose Museum. They were just in the process of building that beautiful new museum that's down there now. And I was looking at the archive with the wonderful Alex Hildred and all those beautiful U-bows and, of course, some of the bones. Because very sadly, the Mary Rose went down with hundreds and hundreds of people on board. They think because the deck was covered with netting to stop the enemy boarding. But when the Mary Rose was sinking, when it heeled round too fast and took on water, that netting meant the soldiers, the sailors, the archers on board couldn't get off. And so she went down with most of the crew. So you've got all of these skeletons uh, of the crew. And I remember Alex had laid out lots of the skeletons for me to look at back in 2010. And I perused them and looked at the shoulders and went, oh my God, they've got this disease in the shoulder. They've got this particular pattern, which is a kind of arthritis in the shoulder, which is basically rotator cuff disease, which a lot of people will be familiar with because it's a very common problem in the shoulder. I just finished my PhD a couple of years earlier and my whole PhD was on rotator cuff disease and old bones and I wasn't ready to look at any more shoulders in 2010. <laughs> I was like, I've done it with shoulders for a while. I've had enough Give me of a that. Foot. A PhD can do that to you. So I kind of went away thinking, I'll just put that in the back burner in my brain and at some point I'll go back and look at those bones. And as I was writing this last book in the trilogy Crypt, I decided to write a chapter about the Mary Rose bones I met the new curator at the Mary Rose Museum and talked to her about the bones and we're going to embark on a brand new research project going back and looking at those bones again. So we've got a student working on those bones this next summer. So that's really exciting, the way that I think a bit of television has turned into research. What are the questions that you are asking? Because I would have kind of assumed that an archer would have one set of arm muscles bigger than the other. Yeah, the questions that we're asking are simply about documenting those changes. And so we will be looking at the entire collection of bones very, very carefully and looking for these changes that we know are associated with soft tissue damage and tears in muscle and all of that kind of thing around around the shoulders. And we tend to get rotator cuff disease either as we get older as a kind of degenerative pattern. But then you also see it in younger people associated with overuse um, of the shoulder in various ways. So it can be occupational. It can be associated with occupations like painting and decorating, for instance, when you're doing something above your shoulder a lot of the time. And then it can be associated with particular sports. So we know that baseball pitchers, for instance, are particularly susceptible to developing it. So we're going to look at modern day archers and look at patterns of rotator cuff disease in modern day archers. And then we're going to go back and properly catalogue it and document it in the Mary Rose as well. Because of course, what we've got in the Mary Rose is a collection of skeletons where 
some of these people would have been dedicated archers. Probably everybody did a bit of archery, but some of them would have been absolutely dedicated archers. Others would have been more more generic soldiers and sailors. So it may be that we're actually able to see some differences between these, these different members of the crew. Going back to your own life, I think you and I share a curse, which is that everyone thinks of us as television presenters. And I suspect neither of us ever really thought of that as a career it was more a means to another end or a way that our curiosity could be sated but you were a medic weren't you actually you're a doctor a proper doctor yeah well I was I suppose I still am but um I haven't I haven't worked with any living patients since the late 90s so don't so don't go to her if you're feeling ill no don't I only look at dead people now yeah I so I was a medical doctor and I um I did my house jobs and I did a six-month job at Bristol University, which really attracted me because it it was anatomy. I loved anatomy. I still do. And it was teaching anatomy to medical students in the dissection room, doing lots of dissection as well, which is really useful if you want to have a career in surgery to you know brush up your skills, cutting things up, and still doing a bit of surgery as well. And I thought that was just going to be a six-month job, and actually it turned into 11 years, and it ended up with me running anatomy on the medical course at Bristol. So I got kind of very gently sidelined out of medicine out of surgery in fact into into anatomy and it was half because of the love of anatomy but also half because of the love of this research which was research into old bones because there was a whole team of people at Bristol University who were doing research in old bones so I I started doing that as well. We in Time Team had a real problem we were very good at digging the archaeology and people respecting that we were really very bad at scrutinizing it doing what they call the post-ex the post-excavation work passing on the information that we'd had allowing other people to develop it and incorporate it into the corpus of archaeological work in Britain. The reason that we were poor at doing that is because we were a production company. We didn't have the money to do that. And we were constantly arguing with Channel 4 that if they were going to do a series like this, they had the responsibility to do the post-X. So you were originally dragged in not as a face of Time Team, were you? You were someone who just received the bones afterwards and told everyone what you thought the significance of them was. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Time Team, just like any archaeological unit, had to produce reports on its digs and those reports involve sub-reports from all the specialists so there'd be people looking at coins looking at pottery looking at bones and one of the researchers on time team was tearing her hair out because uh, they had a backlog of these reports which needed doing and she was a friend of my husband's who was an archaeologist and he said well look Alice is part of the team at the university who who does this work for archaeological units for the police send her the bones so that's how it started. So I, I was very much in the back room looking at the bones after they'd been excavated and not on screen, not not anything to do with filming the programmes at all, but just producing those reports afterwards. And it was Bremer, this Anglo-Saxon site, where a producer rang me up and said, do you think you could come along? And I said, well, look, I'm going to have to reorganise my teaching a bit to accommodate this. Are there definitely going to be bones? Is it definitely going to be worth my while? And he said, well, it is a cemetery. So... <laughs> So I was in, but I didn't expect, I, you know, I expected to maybe, you know, do a couple and, and, and that would be it. I didn't expect it to lead to 
career in broadcasting at all. It's so funny the way the same story looks different through different eyes because I remember going to the meeting before the first day of the dig at Bremer and seeing this person who looked very different from the other people in the room partly because of her gender, partly because of her age and partly because she was the only one with pink hair (laughs) Uh, and and I remember, I don't know why, but you kind of went to the front to talk to the producers afterwards. And I thought, my God, the questions this woman is asking and the statements that she's making are so confident and she's so proficient with other people. Clearly, this woman has a great ambition to be a television presenter. Maybe one day she and I could present it together. So you said that right at the beginning? Right at the beginning. So this right. is nuts. I have no idea about any of that. As far as I was concerned, true. I was just rocking up to do the, you know, to to look at a skeleton and point to a femur and tell tell somebody it was a femur on, on screen. And what happened was we let you go and you went off and made a rival programme, which is still existing, <laughs> even though we're long dead. So thank you, Alice. Oh, but I think that, you know, Digging for Britain came about once Time Team had finished, I yeah, think. Yeah. yeah. And it's a very different programme as well. It's looking at archaeology that's actually happening. I loved doing Time Team. It was really fun. You must have loved it. I mean, there was such camaraderie and getting together with, you know, very often over a number of years, the same diggers the same crews and obviously the same the same presenters as well and you just felt like you were part of this big family it was lovely people actually used to say to me do you really like archaeology tone or are you just doing it for the money <laughs> and and of course part of you is outraged that anyone could dream of asking you such a question but then you you understand their perceptions they've seen me doing comedy and 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 other stuff the intense satisfaction of doing an archaeological dig is just wonderful and unlike, I think, anything that I've ever done before. There's the whole thing about it being outside. There's the whole thing about it having been covered up. There is, as Mm. you say, the camaraderie between all these peoples with all these different skills. And at the end of the day, you have a narrative. It might be wrong, hopelessly wrong, usually is, but you have a narrative. No, it's lovely, isn't it? And and it is those moments of discovery. It might not be mind-blowing. It might not be something which is going to change the grand narrative in Britain, the big story of what happened when. But you found something that nobody's seen mm. for hundreds of years that, you know, that you might be looking at a pot that somebody made in the Iron Age that, you know, is thousands of years old. It's just, I oh know, it's extraordinary. It's kind of shivers down the spine stuff, isn't it? There's a story that you talk about in your book, which seems to take place in the time of Ethelred the Unready. Yeah. And there was a moment in history where, I think mainly for political reasons, he turned on the Danes, mm. didn't he? He referred to them as, is it the, the, the cockle amongst the wheat? Oh, it's awful. Well, Honestly, it, it means the weed in the wheat field. So cockle uh, is a weed that, yeah. that grows alongside wheat. And it looks like wheat up until the point it ripens and when it ripens it has it goes black instead of golden and so um, that's what he was saying the danes were they that's were, what he was saying they horrible were horrible things yeah in the midst of the yeah. wonderful british wheat yes exactly so um, they must be exterminated so they must be exterminated so it's very very similar to you know when we hear that kind of language being used to other another group of people yeah it's very similar to saying this group of people are vermin you know, it's yeah. that kind of language. Yeah. And it also has biblical resonance as well, because it comes from a parable in the Bible, um, which is about removing the tares, removing the cockles, this weed from the wheat. Um, 
that actually has been interpreted in various ways. I mean, as you can with any bit of the Bible, yeah. um, by different theologians and different um, you know religious experts through time. So some people have said, oh, well, it means we shouldn't be separating sinful people from sinless people because the angels will do that. And then other people, obviously, like Ethelred the, the Unready, Ethelred the Second, interpreted it in such a way that he thought, well, that's a useful thing. That's a useful way of referring to a group of people and othering them. And, and it's essentially hate speech and it incited violence. So there was this awful episode of violence in a, a 11th di- century a, a ditch Britain. was found that was full of bodies, is that right? Yeah, so archaeologists were doing some work around development um, at St John's College in Oxford and they came across this mass burial full of people who had obviously died a violent death. And even though I can't say definitely whether a blade wound is the cause of a cause of death, pretty much every skeleton um, in that sample had multiple blade wounds actually on them. Really quite horrific. And they looked like they'd been caused by swords. So they're, you know, really cutting into the bone. It's the kind of thing actually, you know, I'm really objective when I look at when I look at skeletons, but it's the kind of thing that actually is, is really shocking because you're just looking at that moment of awful violence and you are looking at the end of somebody's life. So it's much more like a forensic case than than most archaeological burials. Could you tell where these people had come from? Well, we can deploy a couple of scientific techniques here. So, so again, you know, going back a few decades ago, we wouldn't have had a clue and we would have just have to say, had to say, we don't know. But we can use some scientific techniques. We can use stable isotope analyses of teeth so this is looking at ratios of particular different types of elements in people's teeth and particularly oxygen and strontium and actually the isotopes that you have incorporated in your teeth are obviously based on what you ingest you make you know you make your body through what you eat you are what you eat so in historical times people would have constructed their bodies through what they were eating locally. Now we eat stuff from all over the world, so it wouldn't work quite so well in you and I. But if we're looking at a thousand-year-old skeletons, we're assuming that those people would have been eating locally produced food and drinking the local water. And so they would have a signature from that in their teeth. And it's essentially a geological signature. So you're then able to match it with geology. Unfortunately for the skeletons from St John's College, it wasn't really conclusive. Some of them may have come from Scandinavia Mm. and and others may have come from elsewhere in Britain. The other thing we can do is look at DNA. Now that doesn't tell you where somebody has been born, but it certainly tells you a little bit about their deeper ancestry. So you can't tell if somebody's a migrant from looking at their teeth, for instance, but you can tell if there is some kind of interesting ancestry there. And some of those individuals did have ancestry which linked them to Scandinavia. And then amazingly, the other thing you can do with DNA, of course, which people will be familiar with, is look for relatives. Mm. Um, you know, that's something we can do with, with DNA today. One of those individuals actually turned out to be, I think it was a second degree relative of an individual who was buried on an island in Denmark, <laughs> which is extraordinary, at which point you start to think, Maybe this is a Viking then. And, you know, maybe we are looking at a group of individuals who who were actually victims of this St. Bryce's Day massacre. And that's certainly what the archaeologists concluded looking at this mass grave. I mean, it's just awful, the story of the... So Ethelred had really had enough of the Vikings, even though he himself was married to a woman of Danish descent. Is that Emma? Yes. The gorgeous Emma. The gorgeous Emma of gorgeous? Normandy. Yeah, well, she yeah. was powerful. I yeah, don't know yeah. how gorgeous she was. <laughs> she was certainly powerful. And she was the she was the wife of two English kings and the mother of 
two English kings as well. So she married Ethelred, then she married Canute, and she gave birth to half the Canute and to Edward the Confessor. So she's amazing. And you nobody know. has done it, ever done the Netflix series. It's crazy, isn't oh, it? Oh, God. Uh, it's, oh, she's, a, she's a wonderful, wonderful woman. Formidable. Anyway. anyway, anyway, Emma of Normandy. This is, honestly, when I'm writing these books, I try to focus on the archaeology and then you get someone like Emma and you yeah, get you don't do very obsessed. well on that. I'm no, I go, I do go off on a tangent, <laughs> yeah. don't I? It's like you actually have to when you have a story that good. Yeah. But yeah, so Ethelred had he'd had enough of paying the Danes money, so paying the Dane guild, and he paid them tens of thousands of pounds, which was a lot of money back then, a thousand years ago. And so he just seems to have lost it mm. in 1002 and says, I want you to go out and find the Danes who've settled amongst us like the cockle among the wheat. And... Then we have some references um, to outbreaks of violence. We know that St. Friedwide's Church in Oxford was was later renovated. So we've got, we find out about this through the accounting. So we've got these accounts of money being given back to the church to renovate it after it was burned down following the massacre. So we think these individuals in this mass grave might be connected to Danes who'd sought sanctuary in a church so they were running away and that makes sense actually with a lot of the blade wounds and where they were there were no defense injuries there's no injuries on the forearms as though they're facing their attackers so they're running away they're being cut down with swords they've sealed themselves inside a church and then that church was burned and they died in it and we think that that was what then led to those remains in that mass grave so it is a i mean it's a it's a kind of war crime and a forensic Mm. case a thousand Mm. years on I want to ask you some questions. I want to ask you about how Time Team came about because I know that archaeology is a passion of yours. You yeah. know, it's, it's you know, as yeah, those yeah, detractors yeah. would say, it's not just something you do for the money. It's something you do because you're absolutely fascinated by it. But how did that fascination start, and how it's, did it lead to Time Team? Because it's such an unlikely series. For me, it started in Chichester. I was working as an actor in Chichester for uh, about three years when they were digging Roman Chichester, trying to find it. And the archaeologists there had all dug at the amazing Fishbourne Villa, which was only twenty miles away. So they they knew what they were looking for. They were newly trained. Yeah. They were very disciplined. I was just seduced by the process of digging that was going on all around the town. And eventually they let me come in and help them and just wash pots and that kind of thing. And then I went back to Bristol, which was where I was living at the time. I've got this idea of you kind of in the morning spending your time washing pots on this archaeological dig and then going and acting. Exactly. Yes, yes. That that image is the reality. Then I went back to Bristol and... uh, I went on an extramural course that uh, Bristol University were running to de- to to look at the proto-Minoan civilization on the island of Santorini. That sounds delightful. Yeah, so a good piss up that was. And the guy who was running it was Mick Aston, who later became Professor Mick Aston, uh, who was one of your closest friends I know. And he and I got very friendly. He had no television. He had enormous contempt for television. The fact (laughs) that I was Baldrick meant nothing to him. Uh, And so that that was really the basis of our our relationship. You know, it was never anything to do with with who I was. It was what I was interested in. So you stayed in touch with him? So I stayed in touch. Yeah. And we tried to get a television series off the ground for ages and ages. We failed. Then eventually... I could just imagine Imagine you going to commissioners and going, we'd like to do archaeology, and them going, oh, God. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. No. And why would you do it anyway? You're just the funny man off the telly. <gasps> 
wonderful coincidence of the stars where Channel 4 wanted a series to replace the Annika Rice series, Treasure Hunter, whatever it was called, and the idea of searching for archaeology or searching for treasure, as they saw it, seems to be a really good one. Oh, my uh, goodness. A mutual friend of ours, Tim Taylor, who was a, had a very small production company down Exeter Way, pitched this series, which he had thought of on the back of having had a conversation with Mick Aston mm. when he had moaned about the fact that you could never do archaeology on television anymore because you couldn't afford all those camera crews that people like Mortimer Wheeler had and the dig would last about five months and how would you know where to dig anyway? And Mick said, well, now we've got this thing called geophysics. The whole thing could take place much, much quicker. And so Tim Taylor said, how long would it take? Like a month? Mick says, shorter than that. A week? Shorter than that. Three days? And he said, yeah, Tim said, you could do an archaeological dig in just three days. And out of that, that was the pitch, essentially, to Channel 4. Because, of course, Time Team were doing their own excavations. I mean, this is the exciting thing about it. That was right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We just went in and dug because we knew we could. We knew we'd got the geophysics at that time. And this is rather similar to what we've been talking about, the development of DNA. The geophysics was developed, but the way to to, uh, turn it around quickly wasn't. So John Gator would do the geophys, and then it would have to go away to a mainframe computer in Nottingham for (laughs) 10 weeks or whatever and chug, 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 chug away until we got the results. So So look, when was this, Tony? Because Time Team ran for so many years. This was about 89, these conversations happened. And they pulled me in, really. They were looking... Typical Channel 4, they were looking for the most unlikely presenter to do a smart intellectual programme. I imagine they thought they were pushing you out of your comfort zone. And uh, yes, I'm sure they did. Incredibly comfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. That's absolutely right. So they they thought, oh, Baldrick's stupid. We'll get him to do the archaeology show. They brought me in to, to to talk about it, expecting me to want to talk about the things that actors want to talk about. But in fact, what I, what I did was interrogate them about the archaeology. How yeah, are you going yeah. to do it? You grilled them. Approach? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, and they love that. But people always do, don't they? You know, if you're going for a job and you grill the board, they always love like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And but you grill the archaeology on screen I mean that, that oh, yeah, it's yeah, compelling yeah, yeah, yeah. on Time Team because you go well how do you know that people would tell you things and you go how do you know and it meant that the viewer really understood what was happening I think that's what was lovely about Time Team is that it really kind of opened up the whole process and of course the more I did it the more interested I actually got in it okay here's a naff question what was your favourite Time Team dig huh there's some funny different answers to that. We we dug a a site in Gloucestershire, which was a Roma Villa site, and I remember the mosaic specialist saying to me, "I think there's a mosaic floor, Roma mosaic floor, about probably only about three or four inches below the surface here." And then he, he passed me a trowel mm-hmm. and said. Go and have a look. And I said, I can't. I'm not allowed. I'm not really an archaeologist. I'm just the bloke on the telly. He said, look, by definition, a floor is hard, isn't it? You, you wouldn't put a soft floor in because it would be gone within three weeks. They're robust. And Roman floors were particularly robust. I'll be over your shoulder anyway. You're not going to damage anything. Have a go. And, of course, I, I knew how to trowel by then. I didn't stick the point in and yeah. kind of try and prize the, the thing end. open. It was taking... What 
what they call lenses, isn't it? Oh, it's yeah, lovely. Yeah. Little tiny little slices of, of earth off. And sure enough, I eventually came to a little mosaic tile, scrape, scrape, one next to it, scrape, scrape, a third one. The third one wasn't white. It's a colour. I've got oh, a pattern. Got a I've pattern. got a pattern. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. How amazing. Uh, and, and I was the first person to see that. Roman yeah. floor for um, what at least fifteen hundred years. It's not lovely. So that that was great. But the other thing is, like virtually all of the archaeologists on Time Team, I've always been a, a bit of a lefty, a bit of an anarcho syndicalist, and 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 the um, now the, you're using long words. Oh, sorry, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nutcase. <laughs> uh, and, and the archaeology I really like was the stuff where you got a genuine autograph of an ordinary person from yeah, hundreds of years yeah. ago. So that, for instance, if you dig up where a roof has collapsed in the medieval period, there's going to be joints, aren't there? Where the, where, where you built the roof and they're, they're probably in slightly different places but where the joint was you're actually by and large going to find a little mark made by the boat who saw the joint yeah. just so you remember which yeah. one it is so you don't put the two wrong ones together they're like a little autograph of that person and it's so personal isn't yeah it? completely personal yeah and it's not just like it's finds it and it's not just finds its people yeah it's, that's what you're trying to do isn't it is yeah. create that connection to yeah. someone in the past yeah uh, which is what you've done so brilliantly with crypt and indeed with the other two books and long may you continue doing that oh, both on television too. and in, in book form and it's been i think this is probably the longest we've ever talked to each other in one go in one go yeah. definitely we should cook up a series we should what should oh, we do they'd love it we do it yeah. we'll do it yeah. <laughs> I always ask people, do you have a cunning plan for osteoarchaeology? Oh, brilliant. My cunning plan involves more genetics. I'll be going back to some of the bones that I talked about in the first book of this trilogy, Ancestors. And it's a bunch of skulls from Pitt River's Cranbourne Chase site. And we have... He's the father of archaeology, wasn't he? He's the father of archaeology. And he did so many excavations on his own on his own estate. In the 19th century. Yeah. And we discovered that there was an actual physical archive. So we've gone back to look at all of those bones, which have not been looked at really since the 19th century. We've sampled all of them for ancient DNA. So that's where this is all going for me in the future. I think that's so romantic that the father of archaeology kept all these bones in the yeah. late 19th century and in the early 21st century you can go back and glean information from these bones yeah. which he excavated. Yeah. Good on you. He'd like it I think. Thanks for listening. If you want to join in the conversation, you can find me on X at Tony Robinson and you can follow all our podcast news on X and Instagram at CunningCastPod. And please don't forget to follow this podcast so you don't miss a single episode. I'm Tony Robinson. This is my Cunning Cast, produced by Melissa Fitzgerald and it's a Zinc Media production. <laughs>